At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The day is here. Broke Millennial Talks Money, scripts, stories, and advice to navigate awkward financial conversations is now available wherever books are sold. Get this fantastic book by Aaron Lowry now. Hello, and welcome to Planancial's podcast, Future Rich. I am Barbara Ginty, and I am your host and also a certified financial planner, which most of you know. And I am very excited for today's episode. We have a fan favorite here with us, Erin Lowry. Hi, Erin. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back on. Always love to be here. <laughs> and since we talked last, you've come out with or you're about to publish your third book. Yes, Broke Millennial Talks Money, Scripts, Stories, and Advice to Navigate Awkward Financial Conversations. Could that title be more of a mouthful? <laughs> well, I love the cover. Thank you. So this is, um, I think, really timely for our listeners. We just did a roundtable about how to talk about money and how to split your finances with your partner. And we're working on putting together a second roundtable for those folks who are married and going down um, for them to discuss about how they do it now that they're married versus everyone on the first roundtable were just moving in together or buying a property together, but not yet married. It's really interesting, I think, because everyone does it a little bit differently. But what is your advice on splitting money with a partner or a spouse? I'm a big fan of the joint with pocket accounts, allowance, discretionary income, no one has yet to come up with a great term for the money you get to keep for yourself in your own account. But his allowance just sounds so 1950s, like, here, honey, have some money. And I like, I just don't have a better word yet. Even writing a whole book, I couldn't come up with a better word. But that's what we do, where basically we join our money together in a joint account. And that money gets used to pay our bills and go towards all of our savings and investing goals. Those are sort of our top priority. And then we have a set amount every month that each of us gets to put into our own personal checking account that the other person is not connected to. 
Mm-hmm. The amount that we use as our quote unquote allowance has fluctuated between, you know, things like COVID and salaries changing and all of that. But we we do not make the same amount of money. I actually am the breadwinner in my marriage, but we have the same amount of allowance. Some people prorate based on what folks earn. Some people prorate based on needs. And one might be a spender, one might be a saver, and the saver might just be like, meh, I don't really care. You can just have more. I've heard people I interviewed for my book had that experience. I just like to keep it clean and easy. We just get the same amount of money. I think that that pocket money, allowance money, fun money, blow money, whatever you want to call it, saves marriages, in my opinion. I highly (laughs) advocate for this hybrid model of joint within a separate account. So, okay, and this came up on the the round table. What do you what do you recommend or what did you find when you interviewed people for when there's a large disparity in income? You know, it's so interesting. I think that a lot of that will change between the we're committed to each other but not married and now we're married. And there's a few reasons I think that happens is one oftentimes depending on if it's your first marriage or your second marriage, but with first marriages oftentimes particularly if there are no children coming into the marriage, you have the sort of team mindset about your finances after the fact. I can tell you I was very territorial over my money and my wealth coming into my marriage. We do have a prenup. I highly advocate for prenups. And once we got married, though, I really did start changing even my language. I called it our money, our accounts, even my husband's student loan debt, I would call our debt to really sort of foster this team mentality and part of the reason I do that is not to like be super benevolent. It's because I think that it just helps us manage our money better together. And mm-hmm. that's not the answer for everyone, though. There are people that I spoke with who they were in their second marriage. Both partners brought kids into the marriage. And it's just easier for them to be totally siloed from each other, not just from kind of a legal perspective when they look at their prenup and all of their assets, but also just from perhaps paying alimony to a prior spouse or paying child support or figuring out how they're both going to support children that they brought in. There's just so many different ways to handle it based on your life stage and also significantly your emotional relationship to money. I think that's the most critical part of this whole conversation is there is no right way to do any of this. It really needs to be about what feels good to both of you. And at certain points, that's going to require some concessions. For instance, Another couple that I know of, uh, the man would love to be totally joint, everything together, just feels cleanest and easiest to him. His wife was in an abusive relationship prior to marrying him, and so she feels very strongly that she needs her own money and her own account that he doesn't have access to because of the experience that she had. But yeah, what she went through the first time. Yep. And even though she trusts him and she loves him, the level of trauma that she went through, she's like, for my safety, for my mental health, I have to have this side stash of money. And it's not financial infidelity because you know about it. We're upfront about it. We've talked about it. But I have to have this over here. And so that it, you know, required some compromise, but everybody now feels good about how the money's being handled. That's interesting. Did you see did you see a common theme with the people that you interviewed? Was there maybe not a majority, but you know, 40% of people did it one way and then the other 60% were, you know, depending on their relationship with money and whether it's a first or second marriage or kids. Did you see like an overarching theme or anything yeah. like that? 
I would say the majority of people, particularly in sort of the younger Gen X and the millennial generations are doing similar to what my husband and I do, which is the hybrid method, the joint account with side accounts for your own discretionary spending. I did not know very many people, or I didn't talk to very many people who are in a first marriage who stay totally separate. Most people are joint in some way. And it seems that a majority of people are no longer fully, fully joint. And that's the only way. Most people have at least one account that's their own. So they have sort of that hybrid model. Okay. But and that's but that was consistent with the younger folks. And I and I would probably agree with you with meeting with clients and most of my clients are older. When it, typically what I see with the second marriage, especially with kids being brought in, is they almost always keep the finances separate. Because they're running different households, if you will, still, right? They are. With, and for their own kids and their spouse has their own kids' obligations and so And I think it just kind of keeps things clean and easy in that regard. And mm-hmm. you also have to acknowledge the reality of if you've gone through a divorce before, you want to do whatever's going to be easiest if you ever have to go through it again. And I don't believe anybody gets married with the thought of like, we're going to get divorced. But I think that you need to be realistic that, of course, it's a possibility. It doesn't matter how committed you are, if the other person can always leave. I always get a chuckle when I talk about prenups. And the pushback I often get is, well, I would never leave no matter what happens. And I said, yeah, well, I, you don't have to, they can. Yeah, that was the thing that I thought was really interesting. It takes two people to get married, right? You both have to show up to get married, but it only takes one person for the marriage to end. If the yep. one person walks out and leaves the marriage and refuses to come back, well, then your marriage is over no matter how much you want to work on it. Yeah, that's so true. I also, yeah. one of the quotes in my book that I found that really resonated with me and was very interesting is this idea of, well, if you're just in a relationship, you can break up and that's fine. But in order to get married, you have to go to court. And in order to end the marriage, you have to go to court. And that I think is an interesting factor too. And we think about how we handle our money when you're not in a marriage, you have so many different options about how to handle Mm -hmm. it. But when you get married, really, no matter how you handle your money, there's still going to be a judge and some state laws that come into play about how that gets divided up at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. you do have a prenup. It's just your state laws, whether or not you sign a document. Yeah. And I agree. I'm like a big believer in a prenup because then you're figuring it all out from the beginning when everyone is in a good mood Yep, <laughs> and everyone can agree. And obviously, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think anyone goes into marriage um, expecting a divorce, but with the statistics on it, it makes sense. Just like having life insurance most likely, or you and you hope you don't ever need it, but it, I think it's better to have the document in place in advance to protect yourself. And if God forbid you went through it, then you don't have to worry about divvying things up when you know people aren't speaking to each other or there's hurt feelings. And I think it's also just a really healthy experience to go through. Whether or not you sign the paperwork is your decision, but to at least go through the prenup process, have those really hard conversations have the discussions, have total transparency about your finances, what better way to go into a marriage than to have it all out there to that level of depth and degree is, I think, one of the best gifts you can give yourselves during your engagement process. Yeah, I would agree, because don't they say one of the number one reasons for 
um, for divorce is because of financial issues? Yep, it's definitely a leading cause. And a lot of it, I think, comes down to communication more than anything else. But if you're already getting yourselves onto the same page, and listen, the prenup is not going to magically get you complete copacetic about how everything works in your relationship. You both still bring your own emotional baggage to money and you're still going to have fights and disagreements about how to handle it. But at least you know everything. I can't tell you the number of people I have met who didn't realize their spouse had XYZ amount of debt before getting married. Oh, yes. I I definitely sat in on meetings before (laughs) where things were uncovered. I guess because, and probably with you being in the business too, I would never date someone without knowing their finances. Like that's like very important to me. A hundred percent. And I think that it should be important to everybody because you, at the end of the day, are still merging your life with another person. And it doesn't matter how you handle your money on the back end. There's still an element of merging that is happening. And there needs to be a conversation about how you're going to handle different things, whether that's debt, whether that's a potential inheritance, whether that's cash flow in general, how you budget, quote unquote, that's all really important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And speaking of inheritance, I thought another interesting thing that you're going to talk about in your book, I believe, um, is about having these conversations with your parents. Yes. So last night I talked to a friend and his parents, you know, he's one of multiple children and his parents helped some of the kids, not all, with school. And it turns out now, as far as, you know, he knows, they are not, they do not have enough money to retire. Mm -hmm. So his strategy, which he wanted to talk to me about, was maybe having the siblings contribute to the parents based on the debt load the parents took on for that particular child, right? So the person who didn't have a huge financial impact on the parent because they, you know, paid themselves for their school versus the child that maybe had the parents co-sign a lot of loans and the parents have been paying those would pay more. So I thought that was interesting because I hadn't heard it done like that before, but I read a statistic. I think it's about 20% of millennials are either helping an adult child or a parent financially. I'm surprised it's that low, to be honest. And I think that it's going to I think it's going to go up. The next decade. Yeah, I think it'll go up. Oh, for sure. So exactly the scenario that you've set up, that's part of what I talk about in the book is, are you your parents' retirement plan? Mm -hmm. And I think that exactly this reason of parents, many of them got hit hard in their investment accounts and retirement account in 2008. Now we have Mm -hmm. the pandemic coming back around, which right now things are okay, but we'll see. And stock market... Yeah, it did force a lot of people into an early retirement who are taking packages because state and governments can't afford, right? They don't have as much revenue, so they're offering packages. So people are definitely going into early retirements. And how many people had their parents rated retirement accounts at probably bottom of the market in some cases to help subsidize a child's college education because the parent didn't want the child to take on debt, which is a Mm -hmm. very admirable, noble selfless thing to have done but then on the back end you know there are loans for college there aren't yes. really loan options for retirement and I'm not trying to there chastise no anyone loan. yeah there are no loan options for retirement right so I'm not trying to chastise anyone about the decisions that got made but more saying to millennial children such as myself that we need to be having these conversations with our parents to be able to know proactively 
do I need to help you financially in the future? Because that's something that we should be building into our long-term financial models now, as opposed to making other life decisions. And then all of a sudden realizing we need to help our parents and maybe not having enough financial flexibility to do so to the level that we would want. And so many ways this situation can be handled. And I think it's also interesting to talk about this because in some cultures, people are like, duh, obviously you're going to take care of your parents. Mm-hmm. And that's just a given. Like you're going to have a genera- multi-generational household. Mm-hmm. You're going to help financially support your parents. Duh. And then for others, we were not rooted in a culture where that was an expectation. So it does have to be a proactive discussion. Problem is a lot of parents don't want to have it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's hard to broach it, right, because of just the mentality of I'm the child or, you know, whoever it is, is the child and the parent is the parent. And so they don't need to disclose this information to you. It's not your concern, not your worry. But as you said, if it might be a concern in 10 years, you might want to know that now before you find out that your parents, you know, can't afford, you know, to retire and they might want to come live with you or they might need help so that you can plan your own finances to take into consideration what might be coming down the road. And there's a few different ways to go about this. One, and I'll say some of the language that I actually have in my book is coming from this position of concern slash it's emotionally painful for me to have this unknown factor. So let's have a conversation. So saying something like, I appreciate all you've done for me as a parent. And I know that you've sacrificed and worked hard to support us. So you're laying a foundation. And then you express your concern. Here's what I'm concerned about. As I start to plan my own financial future, it's hard for me to think about what that future looks like if I don't know what your future looks like because we are connected. And I'm thinking what that means in practical terms. And then finally, deliberately ask and say, I would really love if we could get into a concrete conversation about how you see your future and how prepared you feel. And if there's anything you worry about. I just want to know, I just want you to know that I'm open to it and I'd feel better if we could talk about it. How do you feel? And that's a very kind of flowery, you know, your parents, that might not work. That might be like, haha, cute. The other thing is to come in with a more direct, especially if you have family history of any sort of illness and say something like, here's what I'm concerned about. I know we have a family history of dementia. And I want to ensure we have all the legal documents in place so that if that ever comes up, we're prepared and can focus on your health and care immediately. And that takes a more tactical, practical approach about how to talk money with your parents because you can kind of, and I hate to say scare tactic, but if they watched, <laughs> if they watched their parents go through Alzheimer's or dementia or any sort of long-term chronic illness, You want to make sure that you have documents in place and financial resources in place so that they can live a comfortable life in the end and that no one is in pain, you included, having to figure out how to make decisions for your parents without them ever stipulating their wishes or, heaven forbid, have to like basically put them on trial to say that they can no longer take care of themselves. And because you didn't get a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy ahead of time, you have to basically prove legally in front of everybody that they're incompetent now because they've reached a pace where mentally they can't take care of themselves. That's a horrible thing to have to go through as a family for everyone. Right. And that's a timely process trying to get into the courts, right? Yes, it is. Which is what you have to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. I think it doesn't happen until there's a problem. And when there's a problem, when someone's in the hospital or get sick and now you're rushing to do planning at the last 
minute, right, to try and prevent a, a problem when someone just gets a diagnosis or just went into the hospital. But I think what you said, um, like when you know there's family history, or if you're watching your parents go through it with their parents, that's a great time to say, I know we're going through this now with grandma and grandpa, but can when we get through this, can we sit down and figure out what your situation is so we don't have, I don't have to go through what you're going through. And watching a family friend as well, or anybody that's close to your inner circle like that go through something is a really good way and time to bring it up with your own parents in a tactful way. And I think too, you can also come initially just from asking leading questions in order mm-hmm. to try to get information. So this, those two are tactics if you just want to directly have a conversation with your parents and you know they tend to kind of respond well to that. Not the case for a lot of people's parents. So the other thing you can do is kind of try to put out questions to get context clues about what you think their situation is. You probably have a gut instinct, but let's say all right, I'm not so sure that they have a ton set aside for retirement. I recently just switched jobs, just got a new 401k plan. Parents love to give advice. So I'm going to ask mom and dad, hey, I just got access to this new 401k plan. I'm feeling a little stressed about picking out my investments. What did you do when you set up your retirement plan? To which they may say, oh, I have a pension or, oh, I never had one or, oh, I didn't really pay attention to it. I'm not sure how it's invested. And you might be like, oh my God, it might be in cash. Let's go check. (laughs) I like that. That's like detective work. It is. And I think any questions like that, going through life milestones is another good example. Things like, hey, I just got married and we're looking at estate planning and trying to set up wills. How did you guys handle that when you were going through it? And maybe like, oh, we don't have one. Like, hey, let's talk about that. So there's... (laughs) Ways that you kind of ask those leading questions, asking for advice, but really just trying to get some information for yourself so you know, okay, there's no will, so there's also probably no power of attorney, no advanced healthcare directives. We need to get this paperwork done. And then don't bulldoze them. Just keep slowly bringing it up over time and having conversations about it. Yeah, I think it's so important. And what I found, and I don't know if you saw this with your interviews, is the older um, your parent gets, the less likely it is to happen. They get more set in their ways and less likely to change or make an adjustment. That's at least what we've seen. Yes, I could say from experience, I've noticed a shift in my parents' stubbornness over the last couple of years. Sorry if you're listening, mom and dad, but it's definitely (laughs) true and you know it. (laughs) Yes, I always recommend you want to have the conversation or get it accomplished before, I would say ideally before they're 70. And then, because I feel like the closer they get to 80, the less likely it is it's going to happen. Not to say it won't, but they, I've just found they're a little bit more set in their ways, more hesitant to make a change. Every, they like everything more consistent and, and the same. And the thing is, no one likes to think about their mortality. I mean, that's just right. an understandable reaction. But I really do feel like the more that we can position this from the place of like, I'm not planning for your death. I mean, I am, but that's not what I'm hopeful for. Obviously, what I'm hopeful for is just that we're reducing pain for everyone in a very stressful, painful time. And coming at it from this is one of the greatest gifts you as a parent can give me as a child is to make sure your wishes are listed out, to make sure that I don't have to decide Did you want to get resuscitated when you're 85 and you've just had a cardiac event or do you not? Like, I don't want to have to be making that call. I want you to tell me what you want and it needs to be in writing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree. 
So with the book, what did you find was the most awkward conversations? Is it between parents or is it between spouses? Or was there, did you find that one topic of talking finances was more awkward than another? They're all kind of feeder events, to be <laughs> honest. Like There's not one that totally stands alone. And also, if you think about you talking with your parents, and then you, it possibly causes awkward conversation with your siblings, which we'll come back to the person you were talking about at the beginning of the parent conversation. But then it could also cause problems with your conversation with your spouse, because you might feel or your culture might indicate that you would do XYZ for your parents and your spouse is like, Oh, hell no, that is way too much financial support. We're not doing that. (laughs) And it's all of these then ripple effects of these conversations, which is again, why it's really important to be proactive early. And that was an interesting interview I did with somebody that's featured in the book is he really supported both his mother and his grandparents for a long, long time. But then he got married, then they had their own kid, and he had to adjust the amount of support he was providing, because he had to take care of his own family as well. And they ended up having still a very healthy, okay conversation and changed all of that. But even just having to go through it for him was, you know, a very emotionally painful process, because he has set this expectation of providing a certain level of support. And that had to change as his life changed. So all of that just lends itself to why communication and early discussions are really important. Yeah, absolutely. And I can see then, yeah, you're right. They can all kind of bleed into each other. The conversation with the parent, right? If you're single and you decide to support your parent, that's one thing. But now you get a spouse and the culture might be different. The expectation might be different. And if you have now your own family, they can all bleed together. They can. And then also, do you have to help your in-laws? You know, and I think coming back to the original question of parents took care of certain kids, college educations and not others, and who should have to pay what, there's no, again, no right answer for that. It depends on how the family is going to work it out. I would say there also needs to be a conversation of prorating based on income, as well as, you know, Is one couple already having to provide financial support to another set of parents? Can they afford to provide support for both? Instead of actually providing financial support, is there day-to-day physical support that can be provided in lieu of putting a lot of financial money aside? Can the parents move in to somebody's house? There's just quite a few options that exist to make sure that it ends up being it's never going to be equal. I'll be honest. It's like some siblings are just going to take the bride. Yeah. We, I've never seen it be equal. And I've also seen just from the, you know, outside looking in that the parent has one child move in. It almost seems like that child typically gets the house almost always, you know, because they moved, they moved in with the parent to do the caregiving so that there wasn't having to have someone hired or the parent didn't have to be removed from the house. And that always seemed to cause bad blood for whatever reason. It's like, I don't know why. I don't know if you saw that, but I think that's why your point of having these conversations early and say, okay, like what if mom and dad need someone to move in to help take care of them? They don't need a nurse, but they need someone to make sure, you know, that they're eating and that they don't fall. And what is, is that person going to retain the house if they give up their house to move in with the parent? Like, how does that all work? These are, and they bleed, and you're right, they bleed into your conversations with your spouse or partner from there. And it also brings up childhood issues. And I think that that's the really hardest part of these conversations is you're not just having them as self-actualized adults. You are having them also with the 
perhaps jealousies that you experienced when you were children with your siblings or the feeling of, well, I always got the short end of the stick when it took like anything that has to do with our family. So this isn't fair. Like all of that is just going to come back to the surface throughout this experience. And I highly recommend bringing in neutral third parties for these conversations as well. So therapists, counselors, financial planners, what have you. Yeah, I agree. Having a third party who can say, I think you're right, would make the would make these difficult conversations at least getting a fresh perspective. So somebody to, who doesn't have, you know, the perspective of I'm always getting the short end of the stick with the family, this isn't fair. At least you have a neutral party there, hopefully a professional who can state, okay, here's a good compromise. Because I I would say too in my experience, it's never fair. It's no. never going to be fair. It's not. And I think that that's truly one of the hardest parts about all of this is that we do seem a kind of, as an American culture, like push this idea of it needs to be equitable. It needs to be fair within this family dynamic. And it's just, it's not going to be like, I can say even just from my own personal experience, my husband and I do not live near either set of parents, but I also know if my parents need help, it's going to be more on me than probably my sister because my lifestyle is a bit more flexible than hers is in terms of geographically where I can be. And my in-laws have two children that live up there. So we'd be like, you guys live there. We don't. <laughs> and that, again, like I saw that play out with my grandparents when it came to my mom's family and my dad's family, the ones that had proximity to the parents just ended up taking on, and I don't want to say burden because you love your family, but the logistical aspect of taking, you know, parents to doctors or making sure that they're comfortable or having to drop things if somebody gets sick or has a fall. And yeah, that can cause some level of resentment for folks. So I think that it it's just so important to have proactive conversations about how are we going to handle things as mom and dad age. And I do know some families, pardon me, children who, adult children, who are already putting money into an emergency savings fund for their parents because they, even though the parents won't really talk to them about money, they know. I know. That they're <laughs> going to have to take care of them. And they've yeah, they prorated have- it based on income. And based on life, you know, the ones that have more children right now perhaps don't put in as much because put on your own financial oxygen mask before assisting others situation, but that it's been an open, honest conversation with this particular family that I know. And the kids are just steadily putting money aside so that if and when an issue arises, they are financially ready. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And I think as we, I mean, I'm an elder millennial, so I'm at the top end, but I just think this is a great, a great book because it's going to give advice on the things that are coming, right? That maybe you haven't experienced yet, but it's good to kind of see what you might need to do in the future. And I think the early, as we talked about the earlier, the better. It is. And it's so important too, especially with your parents, because it can take time for them to get comfortable with having these conversations and it might be an inciting incident of something that happens to them or that they see happen to a friend. And I also, the other recommendation I have is if there is a really good relationship with an in-law, deploy the in-law to have the conversation with the parents if the children aren't getting anywhere. And the reason I say this is because you as in-law, so for instance, with my mother and father-in-law, I've been in the family for 10 years. They love me so much. I love them so much. There's a lot of mutual respect there. But at the end of the day, I'm not their kid. 
Right. And it has nothing to do with bloodline and everything to do with who raised you. So they don't have the same emotional reaction to talking about the hard things like mortality with me that they might with their children because it's just a different relationship dynamic. So sometimes sending in that person, and maybe it's family friend, an aunt, a priest, a rabbi, a community leader, maybe it's just somebody else that's in your network that your parents love and trust a lot, but that can also come in to be like, hey, we we really need to be having these conversations. And I know that it's painful, but let's start with something a little easier. What do you want in retirement? Do you want to live here? Do you want to move? What does retirement look like to you? Kind of starting with the easier stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Conversations. Yeah. And I would say, and I don't know if you found this with your interviews, but I would say once it's all done and organized, it's a nice breath of fresh air. You don't have to really worry about it again. So nice. I mean, I would touch base every once in a while to make sure that nothing has changed with what your parents need or want, particularly because, you know, if your parents tend to leave to perhaps they immigrated to America and they leave to go to a home country for three months a year, like just making sure that there's plans in place for things like that. And also understanding their budgets for different times of the year that, you know, when they leave, it might be X, Y, Z, more or less expensive, or how much are utilities in the winter where you live compared to in the summer, just having that kind of information. And the last point, know the medication that your parents are on, take pictures of it. So if and when they cannot speak for themselves, you have that information at your fingertip. Yeah, you can keep an inventory. Yep. And they also need to know all the passwords where everything is. This, the whole estate planning process has got to happen proactively because it just so reduces the pain and the grief and the trauma and the stress if and when the, well, inevitably when the death happens. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one quick story and then we can wrap it up. But I went to settle an estate in Ohio and the parent worked in finance. So the assumption was everything was taken care of. And that was not the case at all. So we were in the hospice center and I was going through boxes and emails and trying to come up with an Excel spreadsheet to try and figure out who owned the house, how was it titled, could they afford you know, the investment property and the primary if she passed, which she was in hospice, so that was inevitable. And it made the whole experience just so much more stressful than it needed to be. Yeah. And I... I do think that is one of the best gifts a parent can give a child is just making sure all of that is taken care of and a surviving spouse. Like so many spouses do not necessarily know how to be the chief financial officer of the household. And it's not even a gendered thing. It's just a who handles it on a day-to-day basis. Do you know how to pay all the bills? Do you know where all the accounts are? Do you know the passwords to everything? And just making sure that all of that information is stored somewhere safely is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So Erin, tell all of our listeners where they can get your book so that they can start working on all of this. And I promise it's not all downer stuff. I feel like we got into (laughs) a lot of the heavy things. The book also talks about how to talk money with friends, how to talk money with coworkers, as well as the heavier elements with parents and with a spouse. But you can get the, you can pre-order the book. It comes out December 29th, 2020. You can pre-order wherever books are sold. If you do pre-order, I have a little goodie for you. There is a pre-order bonus that is a unreleased bonus chapter that the book got very long and I had to cut out. And it's all about how to network effectively without feeling like slimy and gross about it and how to have those genuine relationships and conversations. So all you need to do to claim it is pre-order a copy of the book, email 
proof of purchase, so screenshot the receipt, to info at brokemillennial.com and put future rich in the subject line. And that is available, I will say, anyone who buys the book by January 15th of 2021 and sends me an email will get the bonus chapter. Oh, that's great, because I know some of our listeners have already pre-ordered, so they can send that to you. Yep, you can send it to me. This is the first that I'm actually talking about it. The official (laughs) drop date of it will be early November, but if you're listening to this before then, you can get the early release of the pre-order. Awesome. Well, Erin, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. This is great information. And I definitely think everyone should pre-order the book. And this is a great way to get started on all those tough money conversations. Well, thanks so much for having me. Always great to be back. And for our lovely listeners, you can check us out on Instagram at Planantial for the most up-to-date information. And you can check out our online classes, which are in partnership with SUNY Ulster at www.planantial.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.